All right, good morning. Good to see each of you. If you would, take your Bible and go to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts, chapter 26. <clears throat> we'll read a portion of Scripture there here just very shortly. Acts 26. Um, let me make a few comments beforehand. Um, the message this morning is going to be more thematic or a topical kind of message, and it, uh, it really kind of goes a lot along with what we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews with the warning passages about the seriousness of salvation. And I had mentioned several weeks back in Sunday school that maybe we'd take a stop and take a look of what saving faith is, how it's described in the Bible, because personally I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. Some people might not think there is, and a lot of that depends on your background, what you've been exposed to, what you've been taught uh, over the years, and so on. And I want to I share a little bit of that as far as my background this morning as well as we get going uh, to help you kind of understand where I'm coming from. Uh, with this because, again, to me, uh, I guess I would have to admit in some ways this is kind of a pet peeve, although I think it's an important, it's, a, it's an important matter. I mean, nobody who, who really takes the Bible seriously and is really saved could say it's not an important matter, okay? But, uh, but I, I, because of my background, I, I really am uh, a Concerned. I was going to say obsessed, but I don't know if that's the right word, but concerned with this matter because I believe, I, I think it's very safe to say there are probably a lot of people who sadly are going to split hell wide open one day, but right now they think they're saved, okay? And I'm not pointing that toward anybody in particular here. I hope you understand that. Uh, that's, that's obviously between you and the Lord and, and so on, but I want to, I want to, uh, just I'm trying to give you a little bit of understanding as to where I'm coming from in this because I believe that I was taught wrongly a lot of things over the years. And depending on your background, you may have been too and had to have kind of, you know, made a break from things that you were taught uh, and, and all to, uh, if you want to say, to adhere to what the Bible teaches uh, about salvation. But it certainly is a very important, very important matter. And so, uh, again, this morning I, I want to present this, and uh, I try. I made some PowerPoint slides because, in some ways, there's a lot of information as far as scriptural points in that that I'm going to try to convey this morning. But hopefully, the visual of the things will help as well. And let me just say this now, in case I forget to say it later. But if for some reason you're you're interested, I can give you a printout of of these things as well, uh, so you can look more into it uh, yourself later. But uh, I can't print it out this morning, but you'd let me know and I can get it to you, all right? Uh, so anyway, Acts chapter 26, going to read several verses here, but this is in the context. This is uh, Paul as he has been um, a prisoner now. Uh, if you remember, he had come back to Jerusalem and uh, after his third missionary journey, and he was uh, in the temple, and uh, he was... Um, uh, attacked by a mob of Jews because, you know, he was in the temple and uh, obviously they had some misunderstandings about Paul <coughs> and so on. He's been a prisoner for several years now and he's, uh, he's appealed to go to Rome to stand before Caesar, but this is in the process of 
all the things before that and then before he gets to Rome. But here, in this particular context, he is actually giving his testimony, what happened to him, how he got saved, or at least one, one portion of it, before King Herod Agrippa here, all right? And so uh, I want to pick up reading in verse 12 and uh, probably read down through verse 23, but there's just several verses in this context that I want to point out and use that to launch into this subject this morning, all right? But verse 12 of Acts chapter 26, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why, excuse me, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles um, unto whom now I send thee, to open, notice verse 18, <coughs> excuse me, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me, in Jesus." Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto, this, unto the heavenly vision. Now notice verse 20. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and, show, and, should, show, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this morning as we... Uh, get into this subject of saving faith. I pray that you would um, help me this morning, please, help me to be able to have clarity of thought uh, and present these, uh, what I believe are scriptural matters here this morning, be, and, and be faithful to your word, not to twist it or take things wrongly, but Lord, to present it clearly. And I pray that you'd help us each to be able to understand this and to Understand the seriousness of this matter. Again, I, I, I personally think in our day that there are many people who are deceived about this. And I pray that you would uh, work in each of our hearts and help us as well, not just to have the right understanding for ourselves, but, Father, that we would be able to deal properly with other people and help them as we evangelize, as we witness and so on, that we would be able to help them accurately and truly from your word uh, in the matter of this relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
<coughs> excuse me. Um, as I said, this this is uh, it's this is kind of a different kind of message for me in a preaching setting, but. Uh, this is this is kind of a, a teaching message, you might say, and there's going to be a lot of information, a lot of different scriptures. Obviously, we're not going to have time to turn to all of them, but uh, they will be uh, at least references on the board where if you desired, you can jot them down uh, and look at them. But to lay the groundwork for uh, this matter, and, and really what we want to look at is saving faith and really uh, scriptural what I believe are scripture reasons why saving faith involves submission to Jesus as Lord, all right, as King. I mean, there's a, there, there's a variety of ways to say this. In fact, even as the Bible itself presents salvation, it doesn't use the exact same cutter, you know, cookie cutter phrases all over the place. Salvation is described in a number of different ways through a, a number of different illustrations and so on. And perhaps the Lord does that because as people, we have a variety about us. Not everybody's the same. Not everybody has the same background. Not everybody's in the same place, you know, spiritually speaking, when they hear the gospel and so on. I mean, there, there's a variety of reasons probably for this, but I think that everybody here would clearly, uh, as far as adults at least, would clearly understand that when we talk about saving faith, I want to say that I'm going to take a several things for granted this morning, okay? Because there's just one aspect of it that I want to emphasize this morning. But saving faith obviously involves that we believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is God, that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, uh, who, came, who became a man, came to this earth, He died, and He died for reasons. He died for our sins. It, he came to fulfill God's plan for redeeming man back to Himself. And without His death, Burial and resurrection, obviously, we could not be saved, okay? And saving faith involves, you know, not just like assenting to a fact, but wholeheartedly believing that and believing that without that, we would be hopeless, okay? Uh, you know, and, and I don't think that that is really the point of contention among many religious people today. I believe personally that the point is more that the matter of the fact that in saving faith, there's a submission of ourselves to Him that is overlooked. Um, in fact, if you think about this, when you look at the pages of the New Testament, as, as far as the Gospels and so on, as Jesus was here on this earth, okay, the, the, the expectation that people had of Messiah was that He was King, that He was coming to judge to put down the enemies of Israel and so on and establish a kingdom. I mean, that was the common idea. What even, even the apostles and disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry, what they had contention with or what they had a difficulty in grasping was the fact that before that would happen, he had to suffer. He had to die. He had to provide a way that God could forgive sins. They didn't understand all of that at the time. They did, they came to understand that later. And I think now, 20, you know, 21 centuries, whatever, later, I think the tables have just completely turned, and that for the most part, among what I'll call, you know, professing Christianity around America, at least today, uh, and, and that's, a, that's a wide 
umbrella, of course, okay? A lot of different beliefs and so on specific under that, but just among professing uh, what you know, evangelical-type Christianity today, what is readily understood and preached is that Jesus died for our sins. And most people have no problem understanding. You, you realize that even people that we, you know, a lot of other groups, okay, that don't believe what I would believe that the Bible teaches about what's necessary for salvation would assent to the fact that Jesus died for our sins, all right? And, and I don't think that that's really where, for the most part, the contention is. It's, okay, what, is, what all is involved in belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it just agreeing to some facts that he came and died and that he rose again? No. There's a matter of an interaction where a person must be humbled in their heart and they must submit themselves to him as well as, of course, understand those gospel facts of his death, burial, and resurrection. If you noticed, as we read through Paul's testimony, and I don't want to talk just about this because I want to get to 10 areas of Bible reason why that statement is true, I believe. Um, but if you'll notice there, Paul, as the Lord confronted him on the road to Damascus, several things were already in play in Paul's life. For one thing, Jesus said to him after he identified himself, he said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. In other words, what that means is Paul was resisting conviction that God was already putting him under. Paul, I mean, Paul had exposure to, to Christians of that day who were preaching the gospel and preaching that Jesus had not only died. Everybody in that day knew Jesus died. That was a fact just as well as 9-11 is a, is a clear understood fact in our country today. Not everybody believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That was a whole different matter, all right? So the resurrection was a matter of importance, but also then the fact that Jesus, because of, he did all that because he's God, he's the son of God, and uh, when Paul was confronted by this light, notice how it happened, he said a light that outshone the midday sun. I mean, this is, a, this is some kind of experience Paul had here, all right? Can you imagine light greater than that? I can't, I mean... Greatest light I can think of right now as far as what we physically experience is the bright, bright sunlight. But, but Paul said that day, in spite of the midday sun, there was another light that shone from heaven that outshone that. And obviously that got his attention. All right. And he falls down on the ground. In fact, he said they all fell down. But Paul's falling down, there was something different in it than in the other men that were there. They didn't understand really probably what was going on. In fact, probably what happened is some of them heard noise but didn't understand the voice. Paul may have been the only one that specifically understood the voice, okay? But the point being is that Paul, uh, he, he asked, he knew it was God speaking to him from heaven. I mean, Paul was a Jewish rabbi, okay? He, he, he had the Old Testament, he knew, but he said, who are you? That's an interesting question when you think of that in that context. And the voice said what? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. And the point was Jesus was making it so clear to Paul that this is who I am. Paul couldn't miss it. He had been, kick he had been probably resisting it and kicking against it, as Jesus says here. But he came to the point to where he said he had to say, 
okay. Enough's enough. Now, it's interesting that, you know, Paul didn't pray some sinner's prayer here. And I think that most every, most every Bible believer understands Paul got saved at this point. This is what he's pointing back to is his testimony. But you don't see a lot of the ingredients that are typically presented today as salvation in this passage. But Paul understood at this point he was dealing with Jesus, the Son of God, who obviously didn't just die but rose again, and he's alive at the right hand of the majesty on high at this point. And what's Paul's reaction to all that after those questions and answers that took place? He said, what will you have me to do? Now let me ask you something. Do you, do you see in that question the fact that Paul came to a point that he submitted to Christ? I, I think clearly you do, right? All right? And then as, as Jesus then starts saying what he's going to do with Paul's life, okay, in part of that answer, Jesus says he's going to send Paul to the Gentiles, and part of Paul's responsibility is to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's Jesus speaking there, right? So faith in Jesus. But you see, as in part of that, and part of what's involved in receiving forgiveness of sins is a turning from darkness to light, right? And then he says down in verse 20 that Paul says, he said, well, in verse 19, wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. In other words, I did what Jesus said. He says, and I showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all Judea and unto the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Now, some people might misunderstand verse 20 as saying he's teaching a work salvation. In fact, by the way, there are independent Baptist preachers today and of decades past that would say that very thing. That if you preach something like that, you're saying that people have to work to be saved. That's not what that's saying. All right? It's in some ways very similar to what John the Baptist preached. He told people to repent, and when certain ones came to his baptism to observe, he asked them what they were doing there and said they needed to repent and bring forth works, meet for repentance. In other words, I want to see something in your life that demonstrates that you truly did repent. That's the idea of that. But that's what Paul said he preach to people there, all right? And there's other, other places, obviously, where Paul uses some different wording, but what I'm trying to get you to see is the obvious idea here, Paul is not preaching some shallow gospel that's often preached today in so-called Bible-believing Baptist churches, all right? And, and obviously, there are other types of churches that we would say, don't preach the gospel, okay, I'm taking that for granted, but I'm talking about in churches that claim to be Bible-believing Baptist churches, all right? And so our subject this morning is of great concern to me because for many years I was a religious person, but I was lost as a goose in a hailstorm, so to speak. I mean, uh, and I think a lot of people are in that condition, okay? And again, I'm not pointing my finger at any particular person or or anything, I'm just laying out some principles here for you. Let me try to give you as quick as I can, because I'm going to go 
over a little bit here in this, but um, a summary of my story. I have, I, I, there's no way I can give you all the details here in this particular setting, but my family has a, a, has a Methodist background. That's what I grew up in. And then at, at a point in my childhood, I think I was about eight years old or so, my family, we had moved to a different town, and uh, my family, after a while, started attending a church there. It was called Altoona Bible Church. But, um, and during the time there, uh, all I can remember about church there was, was sitting in the seat and coloring and doing different things like that. I really don't remember. I, I honestly can't remember anything about what was said. I remember one song that was sung. And it's, today, it's one of my favorite songs, but that song, Save, 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 I'm Happy on the Way. Anyway, uh, I think it's 669 in our songbooks. But anyway, uh, that's the only thing I remember about that, okay? But the point I'm making with that, all right, that changed things in our family, all right? Because that's probably the first time that our family was exposed to any kind of what you might call Bible preaching, Bible, gospel uh, truth, anything of that sort, all right? And during that time, my parents... Uh, both made professions of faith as well as my older brother. And it was some years later, uh, about in junior high school, that um, we were first exposed to an independent Baptist church. All right, And I'm not going to say the name of the church for right now. Actually, the church has changed its name, I think. But um, it still exists, but it's different than it was then. But um, it was in, in western Pennsylvania. Anyway, um, and I think it was... At the very end of, of sixth grade, uh, it was in sixth grade, at the very end of that, at close of the school year, my, I went with my brother and a bunch of other people to this youth rally, and during that youth rally, apparently, I made a profession of faith. Honestly, I don't remember much about it, all right? But, um, and, and for many years, all right, I, because of things I was told and various things, I relied upon that as me getting saved. Okay, um, but to make a longer story short, I mean, for the next 20, 25 years of my life, the primary presentation that I, and, and again, this may not be your experience, okay, and in a way, I hope it's not, okay, but the primary presentation of the gospel that I heard for, for a long time was, you know, and I'm, I'm just saying it this way, kind of an ABC kind of approach, all right? Uh, you know, admit you're a sinner, believe Jesus died for your sins, and call on him to save you, okay? Now, let me just say that any of those statements, even all three of those statements, uh, there's not necessarily uh, anything wrong with them. I think there's a lot more that could be said about each one of those, but, but, that was the, but I'm talking about that's the depth of it. And as long as you prayed this prayer and asked Jesus to save you, then you're saved. All right? Now, let me just say, go out on a limb, so to speak, and say this right here as dogmatically as I can. That's hogwash. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I'll just say it this way. The Bible never teaches that if a person prays a prayer, they're saved. Period. End of story. It doesn't. Now, there's a, a teaching that's common that's called the sinner's prayer that's taken from the example that Jesus gave of the, of the publican in Luke chapter 18 of him being in the temple and praying, you know, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says, Jesus said, that this man went down to his house justified. Let me just say, it wasn't because he said those words. 
Okay? And in the context, he's compared to the Pharisee who had a proud heart and thanked God that he wasn't a big sinner like this guy. I mean, that, that's the context of that, all right? And, and, and so there's a lot more to it than just saying that sinner's prayer. That's, that's not the, the point that Jesus is making whatsoever. But for, for years, that's what I heard, and that's what... Now, now, it's possible that I misunderstood some of what I heard. And maybe not everybody, not everybody meant it necessarily in that way, but that was the idea, all right? That if you called on him to save you, he would save you and take you to heaven when you die. That was a big emphasis, all right? That, you know, when you die, you're going to go to heaven. And it's almost like your life right now doesn't matter a bit, although you were always taught, well, there's this list of things you need to do now, you know, and do this and do this and do this and do this, okay? But, uh, but th- this idea of this, you know... And, and really, the Romans Road. Probably most everybody here has heard of the Romans Road, all right? And I don't have anything against the verses in Romans, okay? But the point is, four different verses, so to speak, in the book of Romans taken basically out of context and, put, and say, you know, that's, that's the plan of salvation. Well, I have some issue with that, all right? Again, now, I do not necessarily believe that most folk in, the, in what I would call the independent fundamental Baptist movement knowingly and purposefully pervert the gospel even if they perpetuate that shallow view of the gospel, but I think some have and some do for their own profit, all right? And I might even name a couple names here. I don't know. But I think, I think that there are some that have. In fact, in the last quarter of the 20th century, at least, if not earlier than that, the gospel presentation, had, for a great part, has eroded into what I just described, and it's because of people trying to, uh, you know, have success in the ministry and growing churches to great numbers and this kind of thing. Uh, a lot of that is involved in the motivation of that. And there's so many things, okay, that I could say, but it wasn't until I was in my late 30s and had had already a lot more exposure. When I was, when I was uh, 28 years old, all right, I, I just was burdened. And there's a long story behind this as well, okay, but I don't have time for it, but I was I, I believed that God was calling me into the ministry, and I'm not saying that he wasn't, but I believe that. Anyway, and I ended up, I went to Bible college and, and so on, and I had been in the ministry uh, for a number of years and so on, but uh, it wasn't until I was in my late 30s and had much more exposure to what the Bible was really teaching about salvation and had seriously studied the Scriptures myself for a number of years, and, and, uh, and God through numerous events in my life, bringing me to the end of myself and humbling me that I submitted myself to Christ in biblical faith. And again, there's, there's a lot of details in that that I'm leaving out, but I'm trying to give you a general background of where I'm coming from with this this morning. I don't believe that the contention about what is saving faith in our types of churches at all is, you know, believing that Jesus died for your sins. Even the Catholics believe that and teach it. I mean, lots of groups teach that. I just found out this week, really, that that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Uh, I mean, that, that kind of surprised me. But uh, again, but what, is, what do everybody mean by that and how does that affect all this kind of thing? But, but so this morning, all right, I want to consider 10 aspects. That was weird. Ten aspects of proof, I believe, of why saving faith involves submission or surrender to Jesus Christ 
as Lord and King, all right? And people may not think of it all that way when this even happens in their life. But what I'm saying is there is a change of heart that takes place and there is a, a new recognition of who Jesus is in their heart and an attitude toward him, okay, uh, that's involved in this. So let me see. I did something different here. I don't know what the deal is. All right, number one, I got a B here that's, just forget the B for right now. Number one, the necessity of repentance, okay? Now, obviously it can be argued repentance and faith are two different things, okay? But I'm talking about uh, this matter of why I believe that biblical saving faith involves submission to Jesus. And the first reason I'm giving is because of the necessity of repentance, all right? Repent, this is interesting. I, I, I would not have believed this a number of years ago until I did a lot of, spent time looking at all this, but repent, the, what, what I mean by that is the word repent in some form or another, there's different forms of it, all right, is the most commonly found command in the New Testament from gospel preachers to the audiences. What I'm talking about is when Jesus was preaching, we have records of Jesus preaching in the New Testament, records of Peter preaching, records of Paul preaching, and a few others. Really, there's not a whole lot of other sermons in the, in the New Testament. But the most common command that those preachers tell their audiences of how to respond is repent in some form. And the verse that I have on there is an example, Acts 2.38, the day of Pentecost, all right? We know three, the Bible says 3,000 people got saved. But do you realize in verse 37, Peter is, has been preaching since verse 14 in that passage, and, and his words stop in verse 36. I don't know whether he stopped or the people interrupted him, but in verse 37 it says the people cried out and says, what do we do? And Peter answers in verse 38 and says, the first word of it is out of his mouth is, repent. I mean, he could have said anything, right? But what I'm saying is, that's telling to me. Same thing with John the Baptist. What's the most common word that you think of when you think of John the Baptist's preaching? Repent, right? Uh, Jesus, all right? Turn to, turn to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at several verses now as we, passages as we uh, go through these, these reasons, and I'm going to try to do this fast, okay, so we're not bogged down and, and take unnecessary time, but again, this is a burden on my heart, and I believe it's very, very important. All right, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, introduces, you know, uh, begins with John the Baptist ministry and so on here, and then down after it mentions that Jesus is baptized of John, down in verse 14, it says, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, I'll get back to that matter in a second, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. That's the two commands that Jesus says here, repent ye, in other words, all of you repent and believe the gospel, all right? Now, you see two commands there, repent, believe the gospel, all right? But he says, repent, all right? Um, Saving faith involves repentance. It's intertwined with repentance. You can argue they're different acts or whatever, maybe, but it involves repentance. You cannot separate that 
from faith in the Bible, in the Bible's description of saving faith. All right, and we just looked at that. Luke chapter 13, two verses, two different verses there, occasions. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. In uh, Luke 24, that's an instance of the Great Commission, by the way. Jesus said it was necessary, that, or he said it is necessary that repentance be preached in his name. All right, Acts 2.38, we've referred to that verse. Acts 3.19, Peter again preaching there tells people to repent, tells Jews that are present. Acts chapter 17, that's Paul preaching in Athens on Mars Hill. And in verses 30 and 31, he says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. All right, Acts chapter 20, verse 21, kind of a summation statement that Paul's making of his ministry. He says that he testified to both Jews and Greeks repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Acts chapter 26, the verses that we read to begin with here this morning. You see, actually the word repent is, I don't think was even in those verses, but the idea is there. They're to turn from darkness to light, right? Um, but saving faith involves, it's intertwined with repentance. Biblical repentance involves turning from sin to Christ, from all he is, Lord and King, as well as Savior. Let me just pause for a second, lest anybody misunderstands this. When I preach, and many other preachers preach that people need to repent, and that repentance is necessary for salvation, that does not mean that they need to change things and go down a list of things and righting wrongs in their life before they can be saved. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of direction uh, which will result in a change of direction, all right? It's a change of heart. Turn real quick. If you're, if my Bible's still open to Mark 1, so I'm close. Go back to Matthew 21, one second. Matthew 21, verse 28. Jesus is speaking here. He says, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered, in other words, he said the same thing. Go work in my vineyard, right? And the other son said, sir, I go, or I go, sir. And he went not. And then he asked the question, whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto them. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders here. He says, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the, but the publicans, I almost said the republicans, the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe in him. All right, you see the connection between repentance and belief here. And as another preacher that I've heard say uh, on verse uh, 29, he says, if there's no went, as it says, the, second, the first son, he repented and went. If there's no went, there's no repent. All right, in other words, repentance is a heart matter. It's not, a, it's not deeds that a person does. It's a matter of the heart, but it will be evidenced by what they do. That's the idea. There will be fruit of it. That's why John the Baptist said, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. All right? So rep biblical repentance involves turning from sin to Christ. All right? And then we should adopt biblical terminology in our gospel language. That's important, don't you think? I mean, uh, 
and, and this, this is another thing. It irritates me because I, I, had a, I had a conversation with a pastor that I was actually working for at one time and uh, about all of this matter. Uh, I mean, the church's documents had great statements on it about repentance and all this, but their practice and what they did when they went out in, in visitation, everything was completely different. And I was talking with him, you know, I mean, what we should, and he's like, oh, no, 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 we just need to get people saved. Then we can teach them all that. And I'm thinking, the Bible teaches that, then they get saved. I mean, anyway, but it's neither here nor there now. But the second reason, second area of proof why I believe that saving faith involves submission or surrender to Christ is the very name of the Lord. All right, what is, what is Jesus' proper name, if I can say it that way? Really, the way the Bible, the New Testament presents Him, all right, his, He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of those three designations has a meaning and an emphasis and so on, all right? Jesus, you could say that's his, his kind of like his human name, all right? It was a common Jewish name. It's the same name as Joshua of the Old Testament. Uh, but his name means Savior, all right? Jehovah saves. That's, his, that's what his name means. And, and in Matthew 1, when, when the, the Lord informed Joseph that Mary was pregnant because of a miracle of the Holy Ghost and so on, he's instructed Joseph to name the child Jesus because, he says, he will save his people from their sins, all right? So the name Jesus ties in with Savior. Christ, the name, the word Christ means anointed one. It's the, exact, it's the New Testament idea of the Old Testament Messiah. You don't see the word Christ in the Old Testament. You don't see the, the word Messiah in the New Testament, but they're one and the same, all right? They both mean anointed. One's a Hebrew aspect, a Greek aspect, whatever, but they mean the anointed one. So Christ is Messiah and then the Lord. I mean, what does the Lord mean? He's the boss. I mean, but it points to him being God, of course, right? But think of this. The very name of the Lord, the word, the titles, Lord and Christ, are inseparably connected with Jesus and no less so in the context of Jesus as he's presented as the Savior. And there's, I mean, I could spend time going through the New Testament on this, but verses that are often used by people to say, well, you just need to believe in Jesus, that he rose again, and all this stuff. And, and, but they neglect the fact of what it's saying. I mean, even what does Romans 10, 13 say? If thou shalt call on the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. People emphasize that as saying that means praying and asking him to save you. That's not what that verse means, by the way. But that idea of calling on him as Lord, all right, there's an identification of him being Lord and you're submitting to him uh, in that. All right, I mean, there, there, all of these. I mean, in Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer asked Paul, Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What was Paul's answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, all right? Anyway, we could go through all those, I'm just, but the title Lord obviously connects him with being God and has to do with his authority. He is the one who is in charge and is to be invaded, obeyed. The title Christ connects him with being the anointed of God or the Messiah. And let me just say, you can't pick and choose and say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pick him to be my savior without picking him to be Messiah, without picking him to be Lord. I mean, and, and by the way, this is another pet peeve I have, and again, I don't think that everybody that uses this terminology is, is purposefully off or anything. That, that's not the case. But we hear the phrase oftentimes, 
receive Jesus as your Savior. You never see that phrase in the Bible whatsoever, right? There is the term in John 1.12, receive him. That's all it says, receive him, all right? But that means receive him, all of him, for all he is, not just. In other words, you can't, you can't say, okay, I'll let him save me, but I'm not going to obey him. You can't say, I'm going to let him save me, but he's not going to be Lord. I mean, that's impossible. He is who he is. And if you're welcoming receiving him, you're welcoming receiving him for all that he is. All right? Uh, but notice also connections with the idea of obedience. Now, what I mean by this is saving faith is connected with the term not just believe, but with obedience in the New Testament. All right? And there are, there are a number of passages with this, but it's connected with obedience to the gospel, not simply a mental assent to facts. This is clear from both a negative and a positive standpoint. Negative, all right? Look at these verses, all right? talks about obeying the gospel, all right? Them that obey not the gospel is the negative aspect in these. It's describing unpeople as saying they've obeyed not the gospel, all right? In a positive sense, all right? You see, Peter talks about obeying the gospel. In James chapter 2, it talks about that our works are a demonstration of our faith, which is the idea of obedience there, all right? Let me, let me just press on the fourth area of reason, the commands of the Great Commission itself. Now, I've already mentioned one. I'm going to get back to that in a second in Luke chapter 24. But Jesus' words used in the Great Commission passages teach the necessity of submission to him in salvation. In Matthew 28, probably the most commonly looked to incident of the Great Commission, all right, the first phrase there, Jesus said, go ye into all the world and teach all nations. The word teach there, it's translated teach, but it's a word that literally means to make disciples, to make followers. In other words, we're to teach people the truth so they can become followers of Jesus. That's the idea. I think I mentioned this in a context, may have been in Sunday school a few weeks back or sometime recently. I was working on a job and there was another guy there doing another another contractor doing something different, and uh, I was just, you know, observing him and, and realized, I mean, this, he looks to me like he's probably a Christian. Anyway, so when I had opportunity, I was talking to him, and, and, and I can't remember the question I asked him or whatever, but I do remember his answer when we got talking about that, and, and he said, I am a, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus. That's how he worded it. And I, I mean, that impressed me. I thought, that's a good way to put it, because that's what a Christian really is in the Bible one who's following the Lord Jesus, right? That doesn't mean that he's perfect. That doesn't mean that he does everything that he's supposed to do all the time. That's not the point. But the point being is there was a time in his life when he realized Jesus was worthy of following and he submitted himself to him and became his disciple, all right? But in, in uh, make disciples, Matthew 28, Luke chapter 24, in that passage, the Great Commission, Jesus says that we're to preach repentance in his name, all right? Uh, preach repentance. He's commanding that we preach repentance there and in his name. Think back on the previous point about the name of the Lord. There's meaning in all of that. And we're to repent because of who he is and his demands on us, all right? Um, a fifth reason for um, the, what I believe is scriptural proof that, that saving faith involves submission to Christ 
is the idea of the kingdom of God. We, we, we came across in Mark chapter 1 reading this where Jesus mentioned about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a term that's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament, okay? There is a future aspect of the kingdom of God that where Jesus will come back to this earth and he's going to rule on this earth, okay, the millennial reign. There's an aspect which that's the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it clear in talking to Pilate, though, in John chapter 18, that he has a kingdom that's not of this world, right? When Pilate was asking him if he was a king, and he said, well, you've said it. And then he said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, I'd call my people, they'd come fight. Fight the Romans, you know, there. But he said, my kingdom's not of this world. In another occasion, Jesus told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God was without observation. In other words, you can see it. It's a spiritual concept, a spiritual idea. And let me just say that the New Testament implies that right now that kingdom is a spiritual kingdom in which saved people are put in when they trust Christ, when they believe on Him, when they surrender to Him, submit to Him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, who hath delivered us, talk about Jesus, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and hath or God, has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now, everybody who's saved right now is spiritually in that kingdom. You're put into that kingdom by God when you're saved, but there will come a time when Jesus comes back to this earth. We're going to be on the earth reigning with Him in that kingdom here, okay? But the kingdom of God. And the reason I'm making, uh, if you want to say, a deal of this point is because uh, there are people that misunderstand that and that, uh, uh, you know, say that's not what, that the, when, when Jesus preached that the kingdom of God was at hand, it has something different to do than salvation, all right? It did involve salvation, all right? But, in fact, by the way, I can get back to that. In, there's a group, okay, and probably not the only ones, I'm trying to think of their name, but the Berean Bible Society, I think, is what it's called. And they, they, they teach, I guess, the gospel and that. But their view is that the kingdom of God, or the gospel that Paul preached, is different than the gospel that Jesus preached. They're, they are what you would call, anybody ever heard the term, uh, or the man's name, Bullinger, E.W. Bullinger? He's written some books and, about Bible numerics and different things, and some good helpful things, okay? But he's what you would call an ultra-dispensationalist. And these Berean people are ultra-dispensationalists. In other words, they put Paul's gospel in a different category than Jesus' gospel and so on. But it's interesting, and they use that distinction because they say Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. Paul preached the gospel of Christ. Well, Paul did preach the gospel of Christ, but you look it up later, at the last couple of verses of the book of Acts tell us that when Paul was in prison in Rome, he had his own house to live in. He rented a house. He was a house on house arrest, and he was entertaining people. People were coming to him, and it says that he was preaching the kingdom of God at the end of the book of Acts. All right? It wasn't just something that was relegated to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. All right? Anyway... A sixth area is the discipleship that's involved with belief. And I'm trying to hurry here. And these last several tie together, so I'm going to present them quickly. But the discipleship of belief. There's no scriptural evidence or teaching that disciples in the Bible, disciples of Christ, are a subset of Christians. In other words, you can be a Christian and not be a disciple. That a disciple is a very devoted Christian. I don't know if anybody here has ever heard that teaching, but I've heard it. Anybody ever heard of the sword of the Lord? John R. Rice? 
we got some songs in our songbook that were written by John Arai. Some of them are good songs. He was, he was a good guy in a lot of ways, but he taught that very thing, that a person gets saved, okay, but then there comes a time later in their life through, you know, submission and so on that they become a disciple. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. A person becomes a disciple when they are saved. A disciple is a follower. That's what it means. And you can't be saved and refuse to be a follower of Christ. You might not understand the terminology of a disciple and being saved. All right? it's, it's possible to be saved and not be acquainted with that terminology. But if you're saved, there's been a time in your life when you repented and you turned to Him, and you turned to Him with everything. All right? and, and so the discipleship that's involved in belief. Jesus teaches on numerous occasions about faith, and that results in following Him. John chapter 10 uh, in fact, yeah, I had that verse here. John chapter 10, verses 27, 28, a verse I referred to in Sunday school because it's a, a passage about, you know, security. But notice he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And then what's the last statement there? And they follow me, right? And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now, who is that true for? Who is it true that they have eternal life, they shall never perish, and nobody's going to pluck them out of his hand. It's those that are his sheep, and his sheep are described as hearing his voice, he knows them, and they follow him. So if you're going to say that some of his sheep cannot be following him, now again, that's not talking about every single moment. It's a general principle. His sheep follow him. He might, you might wonder a little bit, and he might come and get you, and he will, by the way, work in your life that way if you're saved. But you're not going to be, I keep hitting the button wrongly, sorry. You're not going to be saved and not be a disciple of his. I mean, they're one and the same. A Christian, a follower, a disciple, all right? The submission that's involved in belief, not only discipleship, but submission. The common biblical phrase, I'm going to be quick on this one, believe in or believe on him. Those are the two most common phrases used in the New Testament concerning what we would call faith in Christ. Believe in Him. Believe on Him. All right? They're, they're, I had a guy, I was, uh, I don't know if Tim was with me or not, but this was over in Bethel, Ohio. We were doing some door-to-door -door visiting. And there was a guy that I met in the parking lot of this apartment complex thing we were talking to, and he made this big deal of this. He says, well, you can believe in Jesus, but not believe on Jesus. And this kind of, and which is kind of what, I'd never heard anybody make a deal of this before. And so, uh, later, I went home and I, I started looking into this, you know. But they are different translations in English, if you want to say, but they're from the exact same phrase in, in Greek, okay? And that, uh, that phrase, okay, I'm going to quote something here, all right? The most common phrase, believe, in him, believe on him, describing saving faith involves surrender and submission. In describing this phrase, all right, in a standard Greek grammar, uh, just notice this statement, all right? Thus, this is what, because of research on what they're saying, that exact phrase meant in the, in the first century, all right? Thus, to believe on or believe into, because that's literally what the phrase is, believe into his name, believe into Jesus, all right? But believe into the name of Jesus means to renounce self and to consider oneself the lifetime servant of Jesus, in other literature of the day, when that phrase was used, that's exactly how it meant. People that were devoted to a, 
false god or a temple, a false temple or something. That was the way it was worded, the exact same way, but instead of Jesus, the other thing, okay? But the submission that's involved in belief. Let me move on. The concept of commitment, and I'm trying to hurry here. The idea of committal or entrustment in the, in the common New Testament verb believe is evident in John chapter 2, verse 23-25. The verse is translated from a form including the word commit in several other places. I, I, yeah, I don't know if I have them all up there. I don't. But anyway, several other places, I'll read them real quick. Luke 16, 11, John 2, 24, Romans 3, 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 17, Galatians 2, 7, 1 Timothy 1, 11, Titus 1, 3. And what I'm saying is that the word that's translated believe, it's the Greek word pistuo, but sometimes it's translated commit. All right? In those other passages I just mentioned, they're not on the screen there. Um, it's translated commit. And the idea is the verb, that, that, that action to believe in means it's a commitment involved in that. All right? And so uh, John 6, 47, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Same, <clears throat> same word there. Anyway, the evidence of history. All right? The historical position, people and churches prior to the 20th century it, uh, of the Lord's churches, all right, Baptist churches down through the centuries and so on, their position is that salvation or saving faith involves a turning from sin to a surrender in Christ's lordship. Two examples of this, I'm going to read these two paragraphs. I don't have the whole paragraphs out here. I didn't have time to type them out. But this first one's from the Orthodox Baptist Creed of 1679. So that's a few years ago, all right? This was a typically... Uh, recognized statement of faith that Baptists agreed upon at that time, all right? It says this. <clears throat> now, just keep in mind, too, things that were written in this time period are much more wordy than things that are written today, okay? But unfeigned repentance is an inward and true sorrow of heart for sin with sincere confession of the same to God, especially that we have offended so gracious a God and so loving a Father, together with a settled purpose of heart and a careful endeavor to leave all of our sins and to live a more holy and sanctified life according to all God's commands. All right? That's what they're describing is what believing is. All right? It involves that. All right? And then another one. Um, Somehow I didn't get the other one on there. But the other, the other one is the Philadelphia Confession of Faith of Baptists in 1742. They said this, This saving repentance, notice that, saving repentance, is an evangelical grace whereby a person being led by the Holy Spirit, made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Now, there's a lot said there, and I don't know that a person has to word all that kind of stuff to actually have a repentant heart and so on, but they're, they're expressing that that's what they believe saving faith is, okay? That this, this change of heart in, about sin and self and the Savior. <coughs> Excuse me. And I was going to get into this, but I don't have time. But let me just say that prior to a time in the, seven, in the 20th century, and I think it started maybe in the 50s, really became popular in the 70s and since, 
but there's no historical evidence at all that Bible-believing Baptists ever criticized the fact that repentance was a necessary part of salvation and part of saving faith, all right? That became popular again, I think, about 50 years ago with uh, Jack Hiles and Curtis Hudson and so on in the New Evangelical camp, Billy, Gar Billy Graham, all right? If his ministry in the 50s started that, and uh, Billy Graham, uh, Zane Hodges, Charles Ryrie, and so on, others, some of those names you may not have heard of, but uh, it really became popular since then. All right, but the very essence of salvation itself, think about this, and I'm done with this, okay? But think about this, Sa just the whole essence of salvation, what does it mean to be saved, all right? Biblical salvation is not simply going to heaven when you die. That's the emphasis that many people put on it. In fact, what's the most commonly taught question to ask somebody when you're trying to evangelize? All right? You know 100% sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die. Well, and, and that can be a well-meaning question, okay? Sometimes it can open the door and talk. I understand that. But what I'm getting at is I believe a lot of people that, that ask that question are under the impression that that's what salvation is. Salvation is going to heaven when you die. That's not what salvation is. Now, let me just say, that's part of salvation. That's, that's one of the many blessings and byproducts of salvation. But salvation is a genuine relationship with the very God of heaven right now. And that affects everything right now. It will affect where you spend eternity, yes. But it affects right now, not just after you die. But biblical salvation, not simply going to heaven when you die, the whole essence of salvation itself implies a change in man's heart toward God from indifference and disobedience to faith and love and obedience. I mean, what, what, is, what does it mean to be unsaved? You're, you're cut off from a relationship with God. And why is it? Well, it's because of sin. It's because of Adam's rebellion in the garden started it. Right? He chose to do something instead of what God told him to do. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, don't take this wrong, ladies or men, but God told Adam because he hearkened to the voice of his wife. Now, the point is, he chose what she said, and then, you know, him, her, she had already eaten of the fruit, but he chose to follow her instead of following what God said. That's the point. Because you hearken to your wife. Now, again, guys, don't take that and say that means we, you know, wives have nothing good to say or whatever. That's not the point. But that's the whole essence of salvation. We're separated, cut off from God. So, so salvation is the writing of all of that, the making right of all that's wrong. The essence of a lost condition of man is rebellion against God. Salvation is the writing of all that. Salvation is a translation from one kingdom to another, Colossians 1.13. We already looked at that verse. From death to life. It's the great change of direction from wrong to right, from disobedience to obedience. And that's exactly what Jesus and Paul said in Acts 26, where we started. The very same thing, all right? In fact, I'm right there now. I want to read that verse again. Jesus told Paul to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Now, let me close by saying this, all right? There's two reasons to bring this up. One is, 
All right? There's always a need. Remember in the book of Hebrews, all right, it's written to obviously a congregation of Hebrew Christians, but obviously there were some people in their midst that weren't saved. And again, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody this morning saying, I don't think you're saved. That's not, that, that is not true. That's not the point. Okay? But it is possible. I sat in independent Baptist churches for decades not saved, but thinking I was saved because of what I had been taught. And putting, and, but when I got enough interaction with God's Word and God's Spirit, I started realizing something, okay? And so, a reason, yeah, it's possible someone's not saved, okay? But also, this is a burden on my heart, is that we, we should take it serious enough that we are careful in how we evangelize, how we present the gospel to others. Because I do believe, you know, in my condition that I was in, it was my fault, okay? I, I'm not blaming it on other people. I hope you understand that. But at the same time, I do believe those people have some accountability. Just like we have accountability to others that we're involved with. We have an accountability to tell people the truth. Not tell them what we think they should hear or tell them what, you know, they want to hear or whatever. We have the, we have the, we're, we're accountable to tell them the truth. And so it is, I believe, a very, very important thing that we are careful, careful to be biblical, to be precise in how we give out biblical truth. Now, that's a process of learning and so on, yes. But we should be studying, be diligent to be, in, in, to be right in that, to be biblical. And hopefully that... That makes sense. I believe that's what Jesus was telling Paul to do. You tell them this and this alone. This is the truth, all right? And so this morning, I'm going to close in a word of prayer, and we'll just, I'm going I'm to forego an invitation time for sake because we are a little bit over. But I want you to, again, the two reasons, all right? It's possible somebody might not be saved, and I'm not trying to finger point anybody out, but the idea is it is a possibility, okay? So, it, you know, if the Lord's doing something in your heart, don't shut him out. It is a possibility, right? And it's a serious thing, like the book of Hebrews has been teaching over and over again, salvation serious. Don't miss it, okay? But also, and the big thing, the biggest emphasis, I think, for us is that we are careful in our evangelizing and the, how we handle the Word of God with others because it's a big responsibility and there's a lot at stake. So let's take it serious. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these truths from your word that uh, we've been able to touch on at least this morning. I pray, Father, that, um, that this burden of my heart has been able to be conveyed properly and, and with the right attitude and, and all of that. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. Help us to be careful and be open and honest before you ourselves, but also, Lord, to be careful and, and, and diligent as we you know, deliver your truth to others so that we're not leading anybody else astray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. You are dismissed.